Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel message is from Martin Luther King Jr. Day, when our guest was Mark DeMoz. Mark is recognized as a champion of the multi-ethnic church movement. He planted the Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas in 2001, where he continues to serve as directional leader. In 2004, he co-founded the Mosaics Global Network and serves as its president and is the convener of the National Multi-Ethnic Church Conference. Mark has written seven books, including Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church and is a contributing editor for Outreach Magazine, where his column Mosaic appears. Hey, thanks, Tracy. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. Seriously, I'm so um, excited. Honestly, I was super looking forward to this date to be back on the campus of JBU. Say, what do you mean back on the campus? The last time I was on this campus and I was in this very spot was the summer of 1996 when I brought uh, four or 500 students up here. We used to rent JBU for our summer camp with my high school, uh, junior and senior high school kids out of Fellowship Bible in Little Rock. But in 1996, in, this, uh, in that summer, I had third day right here in this chapel. Anybody ever heard of third day? Third day was in this chapel. I don't remember the organ. I think I, uh, uh, we must have built a stage. But we had third day here. Now, you know who third day is. Nobody knew them in 1996. We brought them. They didn't even have an album out yet. And we used to pride ourselves on finding the up-and-coming bands. It was the first time they played Arkansas. We paid them the whopping sum of 1500 bucks. So I sat right out this door up there, sat with them, prayed with them. They were like scared little boys, and they went on to tear it up. I loved Third Day, last time I was here. And that was the summer of 96, but the summer of 95, I bought, uh, in our summer camp, we brought a little-known band called Audio A, Audio Adrenaline. You ever heard of them, right? <laughs> so in the summer of 95, I had uh, Audio Adrenaline in J. Alvin with 500, seriously, 500 students in a mosh pit. The parents were just going nuts. They thought the whole place was going to burn, but we kept it under control, and we paid them the whopping sum of 1500 bucks as well. So I have really fond memories of JBU. Great to be back here on the campus with you on such a special day here and the celebration of the weekend of Dr. Martin Luther King. I had the privilege of being with Trayvon Martin's dad yesterday. Uh, the mayor of Little Rock, Frank Scott, as we did a unity service in the city. And so it's a special weekend, a uh, special opportunity we have to reflect on who we are and who we desire to be, not only as humans and people, but more specifically Christ-centered people and therefore the local church. You know, on August 28, 1963, his iconic speech at the Lincoln Memorial, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. articulated a dream. He said, among other things that day, I have a dream, a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. One day that this nation would rise up and live up to its creed, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream, he said, that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream, he said, that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Words that ring iconic and will ring iconic throughout the history of America and into the future. So, of course, as we know, Dr. King had a dream. But this morning, my question for you is this. We know Dr. King had a dream. My question for you is this. Do you? 
Do you have a dream? And more importantly, what will you do in the future to chase it and to see it come to fruition? You know, after college, I served as a youth pastor for 18 years. The final eight of those years in an amazing church in Little Rock, Arkansas. That was 1993 to 2001. And during my time there, that church grew from 2,000 to 5,000 people. My youth group from 150 7th through 12th grade uh, students to 600. I had 250 volunteers. I started with one secretary. I ended up with nine full-time people. Uh, we were so flush with cash and the youth ministry going so well. In 1997, we built a $3.5 million student center. We paid cash for it. It had three full-court gyms, two jumbotrons, a climbing wall, uh, a 1, 000, uh, uh, motorized bleachers that came out. Uh, and, and they'd come out, you push a button, the motorized bleachers came up, and seats would pop up, and they were all numbered so we could do concerts in the venue. I spent $250,000 alone just in one room uh, for lighting and sound, the room that we would worship in from week to week. It was an amazing time, an amazing church, amazing growth, wonderful memories, as I shared with you a little bit about a couple of those here at John Brown University. But nevertheless, one day in the late 1990s, in the midst of this tremendous growth and the tremendous success and effectiveness of our youth ministry, of our church, uh, all that was there, nevertheless, one day I looked around the congregation on a Sunday morning. The 1990s began to bother me. It began to bother me. The fact is we were a mega church in the suburbs filled with white, upper-class, and professional Republicans. And in spite of proclaiming God's love for all, in reality, it seemed, uh, we only loved some. We proclaimed a message of God's love for all people, but in fact, it seemed, we only loved some. And that's when I began to dream. That's when I began to dream. And not only did I dream, but I went into the New Testament. I have a Jesuit Catholic background. I was saved at 19 years old. And, of course, from my Catholicism, even the Protestant side of the house, we're very familiar with the prayer of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, when he taught us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. And as I began to reflect on the otherwise systemic segregation of this, uh, of this otherwise amazing church, and I began to reflect on the prayer of Christ that he said, what's going on up there ought to be going on down here. And we know that the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, right? Revelation chapter 7, 9 tells us that every nation, tribe, people, and tongue will one day walk, work, worship God together as one, as part of his holy bride, the eternal church of God. So if Christ taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I began to wonder and ask myself this question. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated and Christ taught us to pray that what's going on up there ought to be going on down here, we have to ask ourselves a fundamental question. If heaven's not segregated, why is your church? Currently, nearly 80% of churches in the United States today are racially segregated, failing to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. 
Surely it breaks the heart of God that so many churches, the vast majority of churches throughout this country remain stubbornly segregated by race, class, culture, and politics. And that little has changed in what is now the more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on, uh, on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. My little brothers and sisters, let me tell you, it should not be so. It should not be so. But more than bemoaning this fact from an emotional standpoint, the systemic segregation of the American church is having an unintended consequence and in inhibiting our ability as Christians and churches to proclaim a credible message of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized, and cynical society. My good friend Dave Olson with the Evangelical Covenant Church completed a study about 10 years ago uh, of church history, a period in time between 1990 and 2009, a study in which he, he reviewed more than, data from more than 200,000 churches in this country. And among other things he found uh, uh, was this. Between 1990 and 2009, at a time in American history when more than 56 million people became American citizens through birth or legal immigration. Do you know how many people became active members of a local church? In a 20-year period when you have 56 million new bodies, not to mention all those who were not saved, not attending church in that period of time. Do you know how many people began attending a church in a 20-year period in American history between 1990 and 2009? Just 446,540 people. That is less than 1%. Look at me. No one is listening. No one is listening. And I contend the primary reason that they are not listening to our message of God's love for all people is because we proclaim it from otherwise systemically segregated pulpits and pews. And it undermines the message. What does that look like in real time? Well, when we started our church uh, in the urban center of Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, about a year and a half or so into it, we were able to rent an abandoned Walmart in 2003, 80,000 square feet uh, for an amazing sum, just 10 cents a square foot. That's about six or $700 a month for 80,000 square feet. That's a steal, except you realize this property was so bad. I mean, we had to, the first thing we had to do was hire animal trappers to trap all the animals that were living in this place. It sat dark for eight years. Uh, our people lived with flea bites for six months. I mean, it was insanely bad, but we were just so thankful to have a place to show up on Sundays and to do our thing. And, and, and that old former Walmart is next to a Kroger grocery store. And just like old Walmarts, it had a big glass front. And, uh, and, and so on, on Sunday mornings, you know, people come to church and before they would, they'd shop at Kroger and then they'd go to the pawn shop and they'd go get gas in their car and they'd cash a check at the check place. And you know, you could do a lot of stuff on a Sunday morning on the property, right? And so they went, these ladies went, a couple ladies went shopping before church one Sunday. Uh, they happened to be white, and they ran into an African-American woman there. And they say, hey, why don't you come over uh, to our church and come over worship? And so, sure enough, this black lady came to the church, and, and, and she got to the glass front. And when she got to the glass front on that Sunday morning, this is what she did. She put her hands up to her face and pressed her face up against the glass to look inside. So let me ask you a question. What do you think she was looking for? Any person of color in this room knows what she was looking for, right? She's looking in that room to see if there's anybody like me. So what if she looks in uh, to the church and she sees the white pastor and they're proclaiming, God loves all people, God loves all people. 
And then she sees the all-white band, AWB. There used to be a band in this country called AWB way back in the 70s. She looks behind the pastor, and here's the all-white band singing and playing, God loves all people, God loves all people. And then she looks over on a wall, and on that wall is a big bulletin board, and on the bulletin board is a big map of the world. And on that map, there's little pins that have flags on them, and, and there's all these little flags, like in Papua New Guinea, or in Paris, France, or in South Africa. And then from, from Little Rock, there's this twine, this yarn that stretches to Paris, or to South Africa, whatever. And next to those little pins in the yarn are these pictures of people. Like sometimes they're single, a couple, maybe a, a family. And she looks at that, and she says this to herself and concludes, you know, it seems this church is willing to send its people and its resources across the ocean, but I've never seen any of these people across the street. And what could she conclude? Well, I guess the God you're talking about, the gospel you're talking about, the gospel of God you're singing about is the God of the white people because I don't see any of my people in there. And what is any different today about that than two or even 3,000 years ago when we read in the, New, in the Bible that the Hittites had their gods, the Phoenicians had their gods, the Egyptians had their gods, and the Jews had their god. There is no different. That is how systemic segregation in the American church is playing out in an increasingly diverse, painfully polarized and cynical society. We can preach the gospel all we want. We can sing about it. We can tell people God loves all people. But unless we, in fact, love all people, the message is undermined and no one is listening. This is your challenge in the future. The fact is, the New Testament church, as I learned in the late 90s when I began to be bothered by the systemic segregation of my own church and then realized it wasn't just my church, it was the vast majority of churches in this country. I realized that the New Testament church, in spite of what I'd been taught in seminary, uh, the fact is it was what we would call today a multi-ethnic church. Uh, it, the multi-ethnic church was envisioned by Christ on the night before he died, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I pray that they would be one. They is you and me, by the way, not the apostles. It's us, those who come after them who believe in his word, he prayed on the night before he died that we would be one. And he didn't just pray it once or twice, he prayed it four times that we would be one so that the world would know God's love and believe. The greatest evangelism strategy in the world is not bring Billy Graham to your city, it's be one. And then the world will know God's love and believe. Not only did Christ envision it on the night before he died, Luke described it in action at a place called Antioch, Acts chapter 11, Acts 13. And ultimately, throughout his life and writings, the Apostle Paul prescribed that the local church would be multi-ethnic, economically diverse, and socially just, not just for one kind of person, but for all people. This is the fact of the New Testament. And I came to realize that uh, through this study. And, 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 and ultimately, that the multi-ethnic church, a healthy multi-ethnic church, by the way, not just diversity in the pews, but structural diversity, shared authority and responsible leadership by diverse people at the very top. I came to realize that the New Testament describes these churches. They were all this way outside of Jerusalem. And the fact is, they're not just nice, they're necessary. And biblically speaking, they are not optional. They are biblical. So with such things in mind, in the summer of 2001, then my wife Linda and I left that mega church in the suburbs to plant 
a church in Little Rock's urban center. Uh, in a part of the city with the highest violent crime in the city, 30% poverty, uh, people out or below poverty, 66% of children without dads in the home. And for the past 19 years, we've been chasing what Christianity Today would later call a big dream in Little Rock. And that was to plant, grow, and develop a healthy, multi-ethnic, economically diverse, socially just, and financially sustainable church to the glory of God in the urban center of Little Rock, a church we called Mosaic. Now, with all that said, I'm not here this morning to encourage the establishment of such churches uh, as I do throughout this country, merely because of changing demographics. Did you know that one in two young people under the age of 18 now are non-white? that 43% of millennials are non-white, the most diverse generation in American history, that by 2042, one in two people in this country will not be white. All that's well and good, but that's not why I'm here encouraging you to pursue the multi-ethnic vision for your churches and for your life. I'm not here because Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing face of America, not because the late Rodney King asked us all to get along, but rather I'm here promoting and pursuing this dream because it is biblical, it is right, and it is the hope of the gospel in an increasingly diverse, complex, painfully polarized, and cynical 21st century society. In fact, in the 20th century, think about it, evangelism was rooted in proclamation. In the 20th century, evangelism was rooted in proclamation. We brought Billy Graham to our cities, and he clearly explained the gospel, and people were saved. We took the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade for Christ, and we went to Myrtle Beach, and we went up to strangers just enjoying the day, and we said, excuse me, do you know if you, uh, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And we shared the four spiritual laws. People got saved. We handed out books by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict or More Than a Carpenter, and people would read these books, and the gospel was clearly explained, and they would receive Christ. That is 20th century evangelism. That doesn't work in the 21st century. No, in the 21st century, it's demonstration. Evangelism in the 21st century is demonstration. It's all rooted in Matthew 5.16. Jesus didn't say, let them hear your good words. He said, let them see your good works. And the, no, there is no greater good work and what the entire New Testament is talking about when it's talking about your works in Ephesians chapter uh, 2 and other places, there is no greater work of demonstration and witness that we can have in a lost and dying world than to love those very different from ourselves. That is the greatest work that you can do to reach others for Christ. Learn to love both individually and collectively as church. We must love those very different than ourselves. Not just with a friendship love, but with unconditional agape love. It is the greatest evangelism tool of the 21st century. It is the key work of Matthew 5.16, Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, the Apostle Paul said so himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 31, and through verse thir uh, chapter 13, right? The great love chapter. Did you know that chapter has nothing to do with a man loving his wife? Nothing to do with it. 1 Corinthians 13, you know what it has to do with? loving people different than you. Go back into 1 Corinthians 12 and read about Jew and Gentile love. He says, hey, you got all these gifts and you can preach and teach, but if you don't have love, you are a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. That has nothing to do with a man loving his wife or vice versa, 1 Corinthians 13. It has very specifically to do with Jews loving Gentiles and the rich loving the poor. 
You can read about that throughout Paul's life and writings. In fact, Jesus too said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples. What? John 13, 35. If you have what? Love for one another. In fact, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus ties uh, our ability to love others, uh, uh, to love others very different than ourselves to our own eternal life and inheritance in what we commonly refer to as the story of the good Samaritan. You know the story, right? Luke chapter 10. Uh, as we read it, a lawyer stood up, put him to the test, said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is it written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's pause there for a moment and think about this. This man is a lawyer, not a lawyer that goes to court. He's steeped in Jewish law. He's a theologian. And he challenges Jesus on this point. He's basically saying, how do I get in? Want to know how I get in? Now, if I had the opportunity to come speak with Jesus and, and I said, Lord, how do I get in? How do I inherit eternal life? How does all this stuff come true? And how does it work? And he said to me, love God and love your neighbor. I'll tell you what, if it was me, I'd want it broken down. Tell me all about this love God stuff and tell me all about this love neighbor stuff. I, wanna, I don't want to miss a thing because I want to inherit eternal life, right? Uh, but this man doesn't do that. Now the question is why? Well, he's a theologian. He's steeped in Mosaic law. He knows the intricacies of theology and system, uh, systematic theology. And, and when Jesus responds to him, his concern really isn't with loving God because he thinks he has that down. You understand what I'm saying? So when he says love God, love your name, he's processed. I'm not really concerned about this love God stuff, but he's a little bit bothered and concerned. What the heck is this love your neighbor thing? And so he poses the question to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Now, traditionally, of course, neighbors are defined as those people who live with, uh, next to you. Maybe a neighbor in a college is who sits next to you in a desk in, in the classroom. Uh, someone in close proximity to you. But as we're going to see in a moment, biblically speaking, that is not at all a neighbor. There's a biblical definition, to, and it's given to us none other by Christ in uh, this passage. And we are commanded to love our neighbor. So again, we ask like this lawyer, who is our neighbor? Now, to properly understand how Jesus responds to this question, it's important for us to understand stereotypes that were in play. We missed that in the 21st century, but they were there. Let me give you an example. If I was to ask you this question, what's the difference between a Presbyterian and a Southern Baptist? What would you say? I ask you the question, what's the difference between a Presbyterian and a Southern Baptist? What would you say? Well, the answer is this. The Presbyterian will say hi to you in the liquor store. Just so you know, the Presbyterians, they'll, they'll say hi. Southern Baptists, not so much, right? Presbyterians will drink wine in a, a, a wine glass and the Southern Baptists in a coffee cup, all right? Now, I tell you this because you laughed. Some of you laughed, right? Uh, you got that, but think about it. Why did you laugh? Because there's a stereotype involved. And whether right or wrong, we have a general idea what Presbyterians are like, maybe a little more progressive, a little bit more liberal, and we have a general idea what Southern Baptists are caricature, a little bit more conservative, et cetera, right? And you laugh at this joke, right? You laugh because of stereotypes. Now, it's important when you approach this passage to recognize stereotypes are in play. 
right? It's almost as if the lawyer says, uh, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, funny you should ask. There was a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan walking down the road. And in that time, everyone would have understood the stereotypes involved in talking about a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And it's with this in mind, then, that Jesus tells the now familiar story. You know the story. A man's on a journey down from Jericho or or towards Jericho out of Jerusalem. He gets beat, left for dead by the robbers. First comes a priest, passes him by. Then a Levite passes him by, and ultimately a Samaritan stops to help. You know that story. Interestingly, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, on the night before he was assassinated in this country, preached this very passage in a message in Memphis entitled, I Have Been to the Mountaintop. And in Dr. King's exegesis of this passage, in this sermon, uh, Dr. King reflects on why it is that the priest passed by the man beaten on the road. Now, the man is presumed to be a Jew. Of course, a priest is a Jew. Think about this. If anybody is going to help this guy, it's going to be the priest. Why? Well, not only is he a Jew, but he's a priest. He's a full-time pastor, if you will, right? And and if anybody's going to help the man beaten is a guy in his congregation, so you're going to think the pastor passes by. Dr. King says, why did, why did he pass by that he'd stop and help? Why did he pass by? Well, Dr. King says, well, maybe, you know, there's ceremonial laws, and, and, and you couldn't get near a, a dead body if you're going to perform rites in the temple, and you couldn't touch a dead body. And so there's all these different mosaic law and ceremonial laws. And so maybe the priest was attempting to keep himself holy, and, and he passed by because he didn't want to touch a dead body, get near it, etc. Okay. And Dr. King's, okay, maybe that's why, right? And then he talks about the Levite. Well, if the priest doesn't help him, or the pastor, if you will, uh, surely the deacon's going to help him, right? I mean, surely somebody on the board, the deacon's going to stop by and help. He's a part of the church. He doesn't have to keep himself holy or clean. Dr. King says, well, why did the Levite pass him by? He says, well, you know, maybe the Levite, this, was a, this road, by the way, was called the Bloody Pass, a very dangerous road. Uh, uh, back then, uh, on, when people would walk and uh, robbing and thieves, it's like the place you wouldn't go out at night, right? So that's a given in the story as well. But maybe the Levite then assumes, Dr. King says, that maybe he passes by uh, because he's afraid that the man laying on the ground is playing a, a, what's called a ruse, right? Like he's only pretending to be beaten up. And, and, and what there are, there's some accomplices hiding in the cave right? And so if I stop to help him, it's a, then I'm going to get mugged, right? They're going to jump out and come after me. So maybe the Levite's thinking, this is, I'm not so sure he's, he's dead and he's hurt. I'm going to pass on by. I'm going to keep myself from getting mugged, right? So the priest passes by the Levite, Dr. King says, uh, and, and gives some commentary. Maybe this is true. But at the end of the day, here's what I want you to see. Dr. King says this, the priest and the Levite pass by because ultimately they ask themselves this question. If I stop to help, what will happen to me? If I stop to help, what will happen to me? But of course, the Samaritan's a very different person, right? A half-breed. It's like uh, 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 Jews marrying Samaritans. Today, it'd be like Jews marrying Arabs, right? And so 700 years, a watered-down bloodline. Uh, religion was, was messed up in terms of that. 700 years, Jewish religion mixed up with what we would call today Arab religion. And, and, and this is why the woman, at, uh, Samaritan woman, John chapter 4, said, now which way is the correct way to worship? Your people say this, our people say that. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews in the South. Long story, I won't go there for the sake of time. But bottom line, this in the story in terms of stereotype is the last person who's going to stop. It would be the equivalent uh, in the 18 or 1700s of a slave in this country stopping to help a white master. 
It's the last person you think is going to stop to help, right? Given conditions, the hatred of 700 years, etc. And yet, it's the Samaritan who stops to help, right? Bandages up his womb, puts him on the Affordable Care Act. Uh, all these different things happen, right? And he takes care of him. And at the end of the day, then, uh, Dr. King, in reflecting on the difference between the priest and the Levite versus the Samaritan, he says this. While the priest and the Levite ask this question, if I stop, what will happen to me? The Samaritan, someone very different than the Jew lying in the ground, asks a fundamentally different question. He asks, if I don't stop, what will happen to him? If I don't stop, what will happen to him? At the end of the day, Jesus does not tell this story to teach us to help others when they're down and out, though that's something certainly we should do and we can learn from the story. But very specifically, exegetically, Jesus tells this story to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And what we learn from that is that a biblical neighbor, according to Jesus, is not someone who is near or close to us. Rather, it's someone very different than you. Very different from us. Those we may tend to ignore or marginalize. Uh, those from whom our own people group may have been historically alienated. Those of varying ethnicity, class, culture, and even politics. These are our neighbors. And we are commanded and expected not just to love God, but to love them as he does. So think about it. Like the lawyer seeking to justify him, right? Most churches today, and we who call ourselves the children of God, we seem to have no problem demonstrating our love for God, do we? In a variety of ways, congregants in the United States are devoted to worship and to prayer, to music and to song, to teaching, preaching, evangelism, to celebrating baptism and the Lord's Supper, to 40 days of this or that, all in an effort to draw near and worship and express their love for God. This is the condition of the American church. But love for God is not our problem. You know what it is? Love for our biblical neighbors. And in that, the American church, and by and large Christians in this country, are not justified. Because we do not love our biblical neighbors. Rather, we love people who are just like us. Too often we fail to will ourselves to walk, work, and worship with diverse others in favor of attending or establishing large churches filled with people who look like us, who think like us, and like what we like. We fail to accommodate those of varying ethnicity, class, or culture, our neighbors as biblically defined. We fail to empower those whose past experiences, personalities, or preferences do not align with our own. We as Christians and churches fail to not merely look out for our own personal interests. We fail to look out for the interests of others. With that said then, the story concludes in Luke chapter 10, verse 36. Jesus says to him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to him, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus responds, go and do thou likewise. Go and do the same. And this too then is my encouragement and my challenge to each of you individually and to the churches of which you're a part. Go and do the same. Jesus, the man says, how do I inherit eternal life? It's a two-part equation. 
It's not enough simply to worship and lift your hands and pray and read your Bible and, and talk all about it. It's also important, vital, as it were, that we love our biblical neighbors, those very different than ourselves. Go and do the same. Love, listen, learn from, and do life with others very different than you. In so doing, you will begin to dream dreams and to see visions of the future of the American church and worldwide in the 21st century. What part you can play and what God, in fact, may do in and through your life to reduce tensions, to advance the gospel and the common good, to become repairers of the breach, to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. When you love, listen, learn from, and do life with others very different than you, you learn to practice the ministry of reconciliations and fulfill your calling as ambassadors of Jesus Christ and represent him well. In so doing, we're able to dream then of the day we will one day stand before him and to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that is a dream worth chasing. A friend of mine, Chris Rice, as I close, said this in a book called More Than Equals in 1999. He said this, I have become convinced that God is not very interested in the church healing the race problem. But rather, I believe it is more true that in the 21st century, God is using race to heal the church. Thank you for having me today. God bless you to pursue that dream. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.